and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I want to take a quick minute and introduce uh, our guest preacher today. His name is Adam Wilson. Uh, he is a husband and father of three. Uh, he currently is a member at Hunsinger Lane Baptist Church, but before that was at Third Ave for many years, and uh, knew Sean and Joanna when they were there, which is the connection to them. So we invite him to come uh, preach for us, to give me a week off, as well as to be blessed by his preparation. So if you want to come up, Adam, and uh, thank you so much for sharing with us the Word of God. Yes, thank you, Mike, and thank you, Vine Street, for inviting me and having me here this morning. It is a pleasure and a privilege to worship with you today. Uh, my wife and children send their greetings as we have just recently uh, moved to a new church. We thought it best for our the continuity of our little ones that they uh, stay at the, the new place uh, and continue to get uh, accustomed to that change. Uh, I, I realized after we had set the date that uh, what ended up happening was I uh, abandoned my wife with our three children on her own on Mother's Day. Um, but thankfully, uh, I have a wonderful wife who uh, thought nothing of it and was happy, uh, happy to do that. Well, let me, let me pray briefly, and then we will look at God's word together. Lord, we ask that you would bless our time this morning. We ask that your word would uh, convict hearts, would speak grace to the saints here at Vine Street, and we ask, Lord, that the act of imparting life that your word initiates when we come to Jesus would continue through all the days of our life, and especially in this next few minutes this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So there's a, a movie from about 20 years ago or so that I really love, um, and uh, it's called Office Space. I'm not sure if you've ever seen it or heard of it. It's a, it's a comedy, a satire about the workplace, uh, and I think it holds up pretty well, even 20-some uh, years later. But there's one scene in this movie uh, that gets me every time. The main character is having lunch at a chain restaurant. It's like a TGI Friday's. And he notices that the waitress has a bunch of random pins and buttons on her uniform. And he makes a comment about what one of them says, and, and she looks down and she says, oh, oh that, that's my flair. Uh, they make us wear it. I, I just grab a handful out of the bin when I come in. I don't even know what they say. And this flair that she wears is supposed to convey a certain look, but for her, it's just her uniform, right? Her heart's not in it. It's a job. It's what she's doing to have to look the part. And then her manager walks over as she's saying this, and he says, we need to talk about your flair. Why, she says, am I not wearing enough? I thought I counted 15 pieces. That's the minimum, right? And the manager sighs, and he looks exasperated, and he says, 15 pieces is the minimum, but, you know, look at Brian over there. 
Brian, and there's, you see this other waiter with this big, goofy grin. Brian's wearing 37 pieces of flair. And Brian gives a big, fake-looking thumbs up. And she says, well, then why don't you make the minimum 37 pieces instead of 15? And the manager sighs even more deeply and says, well, we just want you to express yourself. Don't, don't you want to be the kind of person who doesn't just do the bare minimum it's, it's a funny scene, and it captures some of the exasperation of working in a job like that. I'm not sure if you've ever been in a job like that. But, but no matter what you do, it's not enough, is it? it? Everyone, everywhere, has to be going above and beyond all the time. Every dial has to be turned all the way up. Every priority has to be the absolute number one top focus, all of them at the same time. And you just want someone to tell you, what you're supposed to do to satisfy them. But of course, the sad irony is that you can't even ask that because even asking that question marks you out as falling short. Lots of jobs are, are like that, unfortunately. That's why these workplace satires resonate so well. But I wonder, do you ever feel that way as a Christian? Do you ever feel that way in the church? Does the Christian life for you ever feel like you're in one of those jobs just trying to figure out how many pieces of flair you're supposed to put on? I, mean, I know I'm supposed to do these certain activities or act this certain way, but, but what if I can't? Maybe you look around and all you see around you is a bunch of grinning Brian's wearing 37 pieces of flair. And the go-getters, the achievers, the super-Christians... They're, they're having their quiet times every morning. They're sharing the gospel with their neighbors. They're getting lost in passionate worship. They're reading and talking about all manner of impressive-sounding th theological books. And you look around and you think, is, is that supposed to be me? Why can't I be like that? Why do I feel like I can't do that? But then you feel bad because you know that all those things that you're seeing these other people doing, these are good things, right? And, and even though it, it feels somehow wrong to be that manager scolding the employee for doing the bare minimum, at the same time, is it okay to just do the bare minimum as a Christian? That, that doesn't sound right either. Well, that's what we're going to think about this morning for the next few minutes. What is the Christian life? supposed to look like. When we feel caught between feeling like underachieving slackers on the one hand or scolding legalists on the other, what are we supposed to do? What side are we supposed to take? Our, our text this morning, which was so beautifully read a moment ago, uh, is Colossians 3, 12 through 17, and I hope that there we will see an answer to that dilemma. If you are using one of the Bibles there, I checked before the service, it's page 984, and I would encourage you to turn there, because we will look at a couple of things right around that passage as well. Colossians 3, 12 to 17. Let me read our passage again this morning. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. 
And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's a nice passage. It's, it's an attractive picture of the Christian life. It's lofty and aspirational, and it's very directive. Lots of commands in here. Commands that are nice, but also, can we be honest, maybe a bit basic? If the answer to what does the Christian life look like is, Here's this list of rules that you probably learned in kindergarten about just being really nice to each other. Well, maybe that's not too surprising, but is it, is it all that helpful? For you and me, most of whom are far removed from kindergarten, does what Paul presents here really give us a, a deep, compelling picture that can answer the questions and anxieties of the grown-up 21st century world? Well, I think... I hope, as we look at this passage this morning, we will see in it a stunningly beautiful picture of the Christian life. I hope that you will see Jesus here, and that you will leave this place renewed and refreshed in your vision for what it looks like to fill the hours and the days and the years that God has given you. So we're going to try to answer two questions from our text this morning, which will be the two points of the sermon. First, what does the Christian life look like? What does the Christian life look like? And second, why does it look like that? What does the Christian life look like and why? Though I think this is a, a rich passage, I don't think it's too complicated. Uh, I think we can easily see what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He's laying out a picture of what the Christian life is supposed to look like in the context of the Colossian churches he's writing to. And specifically, he's using a metaphor of putting on a series of qualities, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, etc. He's really unpacking an idea that he brought up in the previous paragraph, so, so scan back up to verse 9. He writes, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So, so in verses 5 through 9 up above, Paul had listed the old practices associated with that old self that were to be put off. And then for Christians, once they received Jesus, they were to put on this new self with these new practices. And these new practices, this picture of what life should look like after Jesus enters in, are what Paul begins to lay out here in verse 12. Now, I'm not going to step through every single attribute that Paul brings up here and, and try to define every term, mostly because I, I don't think that's really necessary. These, these new practices are not difficult or challenging things to understand. Uh, I mean, just listen to them, the whole list. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, love, peace, thankfulness, wise teaching and admonition, thankful singing. No. Rather than pick through each of these and try to say what's compassion versus kindness versus meekness, I just want to step back and think about these characteristics as a whole. What kind of picture is Paul painting 
of the new practices of the Christian life. I mean, first of all, just, just the basically obvious, Christians are supposed to be loving people. Nice, good, kind people. We're supposed to treat other people well. We should be seen and known as meek, patient people who put up with a lot, who don't make a big deal of ourselves, who serve others cheerfully. And friends, it's not like I just picked Colossians 3 and said, I'm going to find the one place in the New Testament that tells us to be kind and loving. That's not what's going on in the Bible. This idea, this kind of picture of the Christian life is all over the New Testament. Strap in, I'm going to give you a little survey. I'm going to walk through a bunch of books. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to show you that this is not unique to Colossians. Galatians 5, what are the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Romans chapter 12 to 14. We are to bless those who persecute us, to live peaceably with all, to never avenge ourselves, to submit to authority, to lay aside our rights. In Ephesians chapters 4 and 5, our lives should be characterized by humility, gentleness, patience, unity, submission. Philippians 2 and 3, humility and rejoicing. 1 Thessalonians 4, we should demonstrate brotherly love, work quietly, mind our own affairs. The qualifications for leaders in the church in 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus are just overwhelmingly a picture of this kind of character. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, gentle, not quarrelsome, not arrogant or quick-tempered, upright, a lover of good. Patiently enduring evil, correcting opponents with gentleness. And that's just Paul. James says wise living means being slow to anger, slow to speak, impartial, sincere, merciful, humble, patient, peaceable, gentle, open to reason. Or First Peter calls us to be submissive, long-suffering, zealous to do good, willing to suffer for doing good, not domineering, but leading by example. Friends, when the authors of the New Testament set out to tell Christians what their lives ought to look like, it is just overwhelmingly a picture of these kinds of characteristics. Now I have to ask, is that what the Christian life looks like for you? Or I know we're all sinners and we all fall short, but maybe let me put it this way. Is that even what you aspire for your life to look like? Do you strive to live a life that is meek, humble, peaceable, kind? Not, not just incidentally, but as an ambition. Uh, I'm not sure as a culture that we really elevate these traits all that highly. I mean, earlier I described this passage as being a bit kindergarten, because honestly, isn't that how we feel about it, at, at least a little bit? These are the kinds of commands that you give a five-year-old to get them to stop putting glue in their sister's hair. These are not the kinds of ambitions that grown-ups need to have in our lives, right? I mean, do you want to be a compassionate person, not, not just to be seen as compassionate, but to actually have your heart hurt for the pains that others feel. 
to be burdened by their problems, not because it earns you any points, but just because sometimes people need not to be alone in their suffering? Do you strive for a meek, peaceable spirit? When, when the whole world around you is escalating, shouting, trying to score points, are you eager to just put down the ball and stop playing the game? Do you relish winning arguments? Or, or maybe you're not an outwardly argumentative person, but do you rehearse those arguments in your head? Uh, those are even better because you always win the arguments in your own head. Do you make it your mission to be humble? Not, not humble like people say it today, as if they're accepting an award, as, oh, I'm so humbled. What they really mean is that they're honored. No, not the humility of an aw shucks little grin that relishes the attention, but the humility that delights in being brought low. Are, are you content with being misunderstood, maligned, overlooked, with having your reputation take a hit for doing the right thing? The world around us, Christian, does not aspire to these things. They are not driven to be more kind or meek or forgiving. In fact, if you've looked back up in that previous paragraph at Paul's list of the old practices, we see what the world's ambition is. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. The world wants winners. It wants fighters. It wants strength and dominance and attractiveness and cleverness and bravado. Oh, brothers in particular, men, the whole world around you is trying to paint a picture of masculinity that decisively rejects the very virtues that the Bible says are inherently Christian. And let's be honest. It's not always just the world, is it? If only it were. But when we look at our churches, which view of successful Christian living is held in the highest esteem? Is it always this biblical picture, the, the beta life? Or do we think, like the world does, that we should strive to be the, the cleverest, the strongest, the champion, the warrior, the alpha? Friend, are, are you tempted to most admire and aspire to a worldly vision of the good life? Are you tempted to scorn or minimize the decidedly ordinary, humble, gentle, submissive, and quiet life that God has called all Christians to live? Oh, pray. Pray that God would help you to desire, to long for the right priorities in your own heart and mind. And, and help others to esteem those qualities too. Point out and praise meekness and godliness when you see it in other people. Teach your children to value those things that we in our culture are so tempted to deride. Model that it is okay to be weak, to be mistreated, to be misrepresented and ignored, that it's okay to lose. It was okay for our Savior. Praise God. It was okay for Him what does the Christian life look like, brothers and sisters? It looks an awful lot like the cross. Okay, good. We have our picture. 
We have a vision, an aspiration for what qualities we ought to put on when we declare our allegiance to a crucified Savior. So we're good, right? We know what to do. We know what our lives are supposed to look like. Check the box. That's it, right? Well, no. No, having the picture, having the vision or the aspiration in front of us it is necessary, but it's not enough. Because that by itself can just become a new external standard. An outward humility or a compassion or meekness, if it's only outward, just shifts our behavioral standard from one set of performance metrics to another. If all we're concerned about is what our life looks like to, to outside observers or to fellow church members, to whoever it is that counts as important in our eyes, then we will have missed what Paul's trying to tell us here. We need to make sure that compassion and kindness and gentleness don't just become a new legalism for us. And in order to do that, we need to understand why Paul tells us this. What reason does he give that these traits, these new practices, should characterize our lives? So now that we've covered point one, what does the Christian life look like? Let's turn to point two. Why does it look like that? Point two, why? Now, at first glance, Paul doesn't seem to give a reason. I mean, there's no obvious because clause anywhere in these verses. But I think his reason is there. I think that Paul grounds all of these commands in one deep, compelling reason. So I'm going to read our passage again, but this time I'm going to emphasize some of the phrases along the way that we haven't really touched on yet. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What underlies the commands that Paul gives us? What reason does he keep coming back to over and over and over again for why we ought to live this way? Well, he keeps coming back to who we are, to, to our identity, and specifically to our identity as those whom God has lavished mercy on. Look, look again, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones. We, we put these qualities on because God has chosen us. That, that's shorthand for the love that God has shown us from eternity past. God, the righteous and majestic and powerful one, chose us, the vile, the rebellious, the shameful. He lavished his love on us. He chose us. It's now at the very heart of who we are. We are, at our very core, God's chosen ones. And that is why we should put on these new practices. The same verse. He calls us holy. 
set apart, sanctified. Anymore these days, when we think of holiness, we think of spotless behavior, but that's at best a secondary meaning most of the time in the Bible. It's primary weight most of the time is on the otherness of holiness. Those who are holy are called out from the unholy world. They are set apart for God's purposes. When when Paul calls us holy, just like when he calls us chosen ones, he is talking about something that God has done for us, not the other way around. We don't act holy, we are holy. He calls us beloved It's not belovers, friends, it's beloved. Oh, Christians, we are the objects of love long before and far beyond any degree to which we could possibly be the initiators of it. This is the heart of the Christian gospel, friend. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Not that we mustered up in our hearts the ability to love well, but that he determined in his heart to love the unlovely. It is this state, not the state of loving, but the state of being loved, which undergirds for Paul everything he's about to instruct the Colossians and us about how to live. Look at verse 13. When we forgive, it is very explicitly because the Lord has already forgiven us. This is not, Christian, merely incidental. I don't know if you, if you looked at the world around us, if you've noticed how terrible our society is at apologizing and forgiving. I mean, how many forced conditional apologies have you seen and heard? You know, the ones that are issued through a publicist or an HR professional. They're, they're overlaid on a somber stock photo and posted on an Instagram page. I, I mean... The world is terrible at apologizing because usually the person's only sorry if anyone was offended. They're they're clearly being forced to apologize and their chief concern seems to be wriggling out of the consequences of their actions. And, you know, far more often than it should, that kind of apology on worldly terms works. Somebody says something terrible, they have to go away for a while. Everybody else moves on, and then they make their big comeback tour, and they recover the fame and fortune that was really all they cared about in the first place. But the fact that the world is terrible at apologizing can obscure something else, and that is that the world is also terrible at forgiving. Because even though the offender often gets back their attention or their influence or their income, what they don't get is forgiveness. The world just kind of forgets and agrees to move on, but the world doesn't forgive. The world doesn't decide to absorb the hurt and choose to be the one who suffers instead of the guilty party. That's what Christians do when we forgive. We say, I will not hold this sin against you, even if that means that I have to suffer for it. Even if that means that I don't get to vent at you or hold a grudge or feel a sense of moral superiority, even if it means that I hurt more for forgiving than I would for making you pay, that's the messy truth about real forgiveness. It's costly, and it's painful, and it's never, ever fair. So so why would Christians do that? Why would we say, yes, that's the kind of attitude that I want to characterize my life around other sinners? Because, and only because, someone else did that for us first. 
Because Jesus forgave us, because he bore infinitely more pain and suffering in order not to hold our sin against us, we can forgive. The, the reason that the Christian life can be characterized by an otherworldly forgiveness is because a life can only be Christian in the first place if it's been initiated by that same forgiveness. Thankfulness. Over and over in this passage, we're called to be thankful. It, it caps off Paul's list of commands in verse 15. It undergirds his instructions for living out those commands in the church in verse 16. And it summarizes what everything being done in the name of Jesus means in verse 17. Be thankful. Now, this one is not just another in the list of virtues. It is the motivating reason behind all of them. It is because of what God has done for us that we do anything for anyone else. The, the Christian life is a thankful life because Christians have someone to thank and something to thank him for. Beloved, we put on kindness because God has been abundantly kind. We humble ourselves because he humbled himself. We clothe ourselves because God has already clothed us. Friends, this is the story of the Bible from start to finish. And if you're not a Christian or if you're not sure if you are, I wonder, did you know that? Did you know that the Bible is not about how we get to God but that how, about how he got to us. Have you thought of the Christian life as basically just a list of rules for living that God lays out with no real reason behind them? We're just supposed to grab 15 or 37 or however many pieces of flair out of the basket, pin them on our uniforms, check the box, get to work. No. No, the Bible is a story of a God who clothes his naked, shameful people who have made a mess of trying to clothe themselves. From Genesis, when after Adam and Eve sin, God makes skins for them to replace the hastily assembled fig leaves that they had made. All the way to Revelation, when those who conquer are clothed in new white garments. It's a story of God clothing his people. And it is a story of God clothing his people at his own expense. It's a story of Jesus, the only one who ever lived a righteous life, the only one who ever was in himself deserving of honor and glory and praise, of this Jesus being stripped and mocked and exposed so that we might be covered. His garments were bid on by his executioners so that ours might be secured in eternity. He wore our sin and nakedness so that we might be forever clothed in his righteousness. We put on his kindness, his meekness, his forgiveness and humility and love because he's already put them on us for us. Is the Christian life about doing just the bare minimum? figuring out what exactly we're supposed to do and then doing exactly enough to skate by? Or is it about being the annoying overachiever with a plastic smile going around with us wherever we go, always finding a way to demonstrate that we've got it covered? Or maybe are we supposed to be the manager, scolding all the people who just don't seem like they're doing it well enough? Let me suggest another option, friend. None of the above. Let me suggest, Christian, instead, 
that you don't work here. You are not the waiter or the waitress or the manager at this proverbial restaurant. You are the customer. You are the guest. And it's not some kitschy chain with rubbery $14 mozzarella sticks. No, you are the guest at a lavish banquet, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. God himself has spread before you a rich feast, and all he asks is that you enjoy it. You belong at the table because God himself says so. And now you don't have to wear a single solitary piece of flair. You are already clothed in brilliant garments that have been made white by the blood of the Lamb. Let's pray. Oh God, help us to see what you have done for us. Help us to put no trust in ourselves or in what we do. Help us to pay no attention to the little pieces of flair that we might want to attach to our uniforms, but instead to be consumed by our love of the feast that you have put before us. Help us to respond to your love that you gave us in your son Jesus at the cross, to be thankful people and to radiate a life that looks like his because of what you've done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.